You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, if you have um, Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and make your way to 2 Kings chapter 6. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, We'll be actually in chapter 7 and and chapter 8 a little bit too, and we'll hop around a little bit, but... If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles, page 312 uh, is where you can find, find that text. When, uh, when Shay and I bought our house <clears throat> about 10 years ago, it came with a late 1970s era GE electric stove. And the color of that stove was Harvest Gold. Does anybody remember Harvest Gold appliances? I was joking with Ben before, like, whoever raises their hand, they're your oaks of righteousness. There's your... <laughs> There's your age and maturity that you need on your, on your team right there. Okay, as part, of, as part of closing negotiations for our house, we ended up with a home warranty for two years. And it covered all the, all the major appliances of our house. And so Shay and I were just constantly rooting for this thing to die. Just please die in the first couple years so that the home warranty will cover it and replace it. And one day, it did. It did. But before the home warranty would replace it, they sent out a technician to see if it could be serviced. And so the technician came and fiddled around a little bit and brought out a replacement part and plugged the replacement part in. And, and wouldn't you know it, the darn thing started working again immediately. I think it was Shay who soon after that asked, uh, how long is this thing going to last? It, it, was 35, it was older than we were. It was 35 years old at that point. Surely we've got to be coming to the end of the life cycle of this thing. And the technician kind of chuckled and said, this thing is actually going to live longer than you. This, this thing will outlive you. As long as you're in this home, this thing will, will be here. I was thinking about that this week and, and kind of came to this thought. We live in a throwaway society. We live in a throwaway society. In our day, most things are not made to last very long. And we've gotten so used to that that we often don't even consider trying to fix or trying to restore broken or imperfect things. We hope we get our our 10 or so years out of an appliance, our three or four years out of the latest phone, and then we throw it away and we get a new one. And I think in some ways, at least, that has formed our view of God and our view of the true story of the world. A lot of people and a lot of Christians even think that the Christian view is that in the end, God discards this corrupted earth and and he starts over from scratch with a new one. So, at the risk of making some of you angry, if you permit me a, a mashup of a Star Trek and a Star Wars metaphor all in one, a lot of people think the Christian view of the end is, beam me up, God, so that you can explode this place like the Death Star. That's how most people think, what Christians think about, about the, war, the end. But God is not a throwaway God. He is the God of restoration. He's the God of restoration. He, he's the God who creates and then recreates. He's the God who makes all things new. But his making all things new is not him discarding the old and starting from scratch and not discarding what is broken and starting over. He restores what sin corrupts. This morning as we're continuing this series in 2 Kings, we're going to see a couple examples of God's restoration. And it's going to be really evident really quickly. It's in the midst of some really broken and really warped things. We still see that God is not a throwaway God. So I invite you to listen now with open ears to this book that we love. 
I'm going to start in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria, that is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. Now as the king of Israel was passing, on, or passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the winepress? The king asked her, What is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son, that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to her, Give your son, that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall, and the people looked, and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, May God do so to me and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Chapter 7. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now just to summarize here then the next verses, verses 13 through 15, there's four lepers at the gate of Samaria, and they kind of say, What do we have to lose? We're going to starve if we try to stay near the city. We're going to go to the Syrian army and see if they have mercy on us. And so they go, but God actually makes the Syrians hear an entire army of horses and chariots coming. And so the the, the whole Syrian army runs. They run away, leaving everything behind, leaving gold and silver and food and clothing behind. The lepers get there. They first start to enjoy all of that stuff for themselves, but then they quickly realize, oh, this is good news. We need to share this with the city of Samaria. And so they go back. They tell the, the city. The king is understandably skeptical thinks it's a trap. He thinks the Syrian army is trying to draw the people out so that they can attack them. But he also says, we have nothing to lose. We're about to all die. So he sends some scouts out and they find out that is indeed true. And that's where we pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 7. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. Now the king had appointed the captain on whose hand he leaned to have charge of the gate. And the people trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria, the captain had answered the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate and he died." 
Chapter 8, I'm going to do in the first six verses of chapter 8, so hang in there with me. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, help us now to turn our hearts to you and to hear what you speak to us today. For surely through Jesus Christ, you speak peace to your people. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. God is the God of restoration. And two ways we see that in today's text. First, in a city restored, we glimpse God's promise. And then second, in a home restored, we glimpse God's providence. City restored, a home restored, God's promise, God's providence. So first, let's talk about a city restored. If you've been with us in the series uh, over the past few weeks, we've seen this ongoing tension these conflicts between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria. Now, here at the end of chapter 6, it's boiled over into this full-scale war. Ben-Hadad of Syria sends his entire army to besiege the city of Samaria. A siege like this was, was actually a common tactic in ancient warfare. If you couldn't break through a city's defenses, you would surround it, you would cut it off from resources like food and water. You would cut it off from any kind of outside help. And then you would just wait it out. The people inside the city would, would either eventually surrender or they would starve. And as we read, Syria's siege is very effective. A shekel of silver, that was what a, a standard worker, a common worker would make in a month. They would earn one shekel of silver a month. And it reaches this point in Samaria where it would take five months of wages to buy this little tiny amount of dove dung. Or 80 months, over six and a half years of wages, to buy an unclean, barely edible head of a donkey. So it's what some politicians in our day might call a mild recession. <laughs> slight inflation, slight inflation. But even more appalling, and I'm sure this is the part that just jumped out to you as I read it, even more appalling than donkey heads and dove dung, the people of Samaria are resorting to eating their own children. As a father, as, a one, as one who has kids, I can't fathom that. I can't fathom that. I can't imagine the desperation that it would take to do that, to be able to even do that. Two mothers have made this, this agreement. They're, they're going to eat the one son today and then the others tomorrow. And so they follow through on that. They eat the first son but on the next day, the other mother refuses and hides her son. We, we are rightly mortified at this. That's actually why it's, it, it's in Scripture. It, it is here to sicken you, 
to, to mortify us. That's the point of why it's here. This is a nauseating picture of just how bad things have gotten in Israel, just how far this northern kingdom and this city of Samaria have run from God. As sickening as it is, it's actually not a surprise. Because centuries earlier, this is exactly what God said would happen if his people rebelled against his ways and rejected his, his commands. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God said through Moses that if his people disobeyed, enemy nations, quote, shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land, and you shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress with which your enemies shall distress you. Or likewise, Leviticus chapter 26, you shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters and I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate. I myself, God says, will devastate the land and I will scatter you among the nations and your cities shall be a waste. As sickening as this is, the surprising part is not that there are parents resorting to eating their children. The surprising thing in this moment is that the last part of those words in Leviticus don't happen. Yet, not, not for 120 more years does the city of Samaria actually fall. In this moment, instead of laying the city waste, instead of wiping Samaria off the face of the earth like Sodom and Gomorrah, the surprising thing is that here God promises restoration. Remember that this is an openly apostate and idolatrous kingdom. God has been incredibly patient, incredibly gracious with them for about 100 years at this point. This is the city, Samaria, where the people, where the kings, the first kings, set up golden calves to worship. And remember Ahab, if you've been with us in this series, remember King Ahab? Remember how bad a king he was and that God said he was going to take Ahab and his whole family line out? Well, it's been over 10 years since God said he was going to do that, but his family is still in power. This king of Israel, King Jehoram, is Ahab's son. And like the other kings of Israel, like his father, he's not a good king. He's not a good king. This sackcloth undershirt that they see him wearing, it's not a sign of real repentance as it is for some people. It's, a, it's simply a sign that he's just upset with how bad things are. And we get a really clear indicator of that when his solution to this desperation, his solution to how bad things have gotten is not to pray, is not to repent. It's to go kill the messenger. It's to go, to go kill Elisha. And yet through Elisha, to a wicked king, to a wicked city that's been rebelling for a hundred years, God promises restoration. He says, tomorrow, 24 hours from now, from this moment, where it's so bad that mothers have resorted to eating their sons, prices are going to be restored to normal. The city won't be wiped off the face of the earth. The city will be spared. I'd invite you to take some time to read that section that I just had to summarize this morning. Uh, one scholar calls it vintage Yahweh. In, in other words, that God is always taking the weak to, and using them to shame the strong. He's always taking the outsider to, to bring deliverance. And God makes these four lepers sound like a whole army of horses and chariots. The Syrians are right on the cusp of being effective in their siege. They're right on the cusp of winning. They just run and they leave everything behind, which is what enables the prices of things in Samaria. That there's now food and the prices of things come down. The city stabilizes. So there's so much we could explore here, but the most important thing is this. In a city restored, we glimpse God's promise. We glimpse God's promise. This city was miraculously restored, not because Samaria deserved that, 
but because God said he would restore it. He promised restoration. Elisha said, tomorrow, 24 hours from now, this will be over, and it was. And three times, the author of Kings is emphasizing this and affirming this in verses 16 through 18 of chapter 7. This is happening because God said it would happen. Verse 16, this was according to the word of the Lord. Verse 17, it was as the man of God had spoken. Verse 18, it happened according to what the man of God had said. Here's the point. When God promises restoration, he brings restoration. And church, here's the good news for you and me. Through Jesus Christ, we have even better promises for restoration. We have a better prophet than Elisha in Jesus, and we have better promises for restoration. Deep in the the fiber of our being as human beings, we long for a better city, a fully restored city. The author of Hebrews writes that all the way back to Abraham, we've been looking for this city whose designer and builder is God. All our lives, we have been desiring a better country, a heavenly country. And there's this incredible promise in Hebrews where the author is writing about that. It says, For people of faith, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that's why in Revelation 21, when Jesus comes again in all his glory, in all his power, when Jesus says in that moment, Behold, I am making all things new, it's a new city. It's a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven to this earth. In other words, God does not torch this place and start over from scratch. He brings the new city to this earth. He's the God who restores. And even now, through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, God has begun restoring. He's begun reconciling all things to himself. The culmination of that is that city that we have been hardwired to long for the city that we've been looking for, whether you've ever articulated it that way or not. God is the God of restoration. And in this restoration of Samaria, we are glimpsing that ultimate promise, God's ultimate promise for restoration. So men and women, I just want to call you this morning, believe that promise. Believe that promise. Do not harden your heart to God's promise to restore. Because as you well know, and I do, things in this world look really bleak sometimes. And we may have never reached the desperation that Samaria reached in 2 Kings. But we know something of the desperation. We know something of the darkness. Most of us have experienced the pain of death of someone we really love. Many of us know the sorrows of betrayal from people we care about. A lot of us know the despair of prolonged illness or physical or mental decline. All of us have known dark nights of the soul. Some of us have known the horrors of abuse in its various forms. It's one thing for us to wrestle deeply with that, to struggle and to doubt. In other words, to to survey this world and to survey the lives of people we care so much about and wonder, is God really the God of restoration? Because if he is, where's the restoration? Where is it right now? If you aren't wrestling with that in your life, at least at some times, it's probably because you're not actually paying attention. But that's different. That kind of wrestling is different from hardening your heart to God's promise. And notice here in 2 Kings 7, the one person who doesn't get to enjoy this restoration of Samaria is this captain who gets trampled in the gate at the end. Why does that happen to him? It happens because he hardened his heart. 
When Elisha promised restoration, that man hardened his heart and mocked God. What, what, what's God going to do? Is he going to open a drive through window in the food pantry of heaven? There's no way this is happening. Don't harden your heart like this man. Don't, don't mock God like this man. Instead, take your genuine wrestling, take your genuine doubt and your struggle, and instead of this man, follow the man in Mark chapter 9. The man who face-to-face with Jesus says to him, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. God, you are the God who restores. I believe that that's true. I believe that that's what you've promised. I can't see it right now. I can't see it. I need help to see it. I need help to trust that that's true. I'm going to invite you right now just to take a couple moments and think, what are you longing to see God restore? Could be in your own life. Could be in a loved one's life. Could be in this world. What are you longing to see God restore? And if you have a thing, a couple things in your mind, as a way of seeking to believe this promise of God together, as a way of us exercising faith in God's promise to restore, I'm going to actually ask you this morning to join me in a responsive reading. This is a portion of Andrew Peterson's song, Is He Worthy? And we won't sing it, we'll just, we'll just speak it this morning. But this is a moment for us to proclaim together with one voice, God, we know you are the God of restoration. We believe, but help our unbelief. So let me read the regular text. Let's together read the bold. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. And is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. It is good that we remind ourselves of this, that we help each other see and believe. Friends, believe God's promise today. He is the God of restoration. And when Jesus comes again, he brings a restored city. So that's a city restored. With just a few minutes we have left this morning, let's talk about a home restored. At the beginning of chapter 8, we actually get to re-meet uh, an old friend, someone we've met before uh, in the book of 2 Kings. Back in chapter 4, Elisha used to stay with this woman from Shunem. Uh, she and her husband are the ones who built a room for him on top of their roof, and who used to feed him every time he came through town. She's also the one, even more significantly, for whom God provided an unexpected son. And then, if you remember the story, took that son away, he died. And then, as verse 1 here of chapter 8 puts it, restored that son back to life. And so this woman from Shunem is someone who knows firsthand that God is the God of restoration. And she has experienced that in a way that very few people in the history of humanity ever have. That's perhaps why she was so willing to obey difficult words from Elisha. He told her to to leave her home, to go be a sojourner for seven years in another country. And in doing so, in obeying and going, 
She avoided this long and this widespread famine, but she lost her home. I don't know if any of you have ever been displaced from your home, but it's a really disorienting and and disequilibriating kind of feeling. When we moved here in September of 2011, it was like two weeks after the last major flood of the Susquehanna River, and a lot of people in this region were displaced from their homes. Some of our core team members couldn't live in their home for four or five months, and we were getting a core team together to plant this church. It's incredibly difficult to lose your home to natural disaster. For this woman and her family, imagine this though, seeing your home intact, it's right there, it's standing, but someone else has robbed it from me. Someone else has taken it from me. It's not mine anymore. And it's not clear who took this woman's home. It's actually possible though that the king himself is the one who stole it. As Ahab's son, it's really not hard for us to imagine that the man who would kill Naboth he would rob his vineyard to make a vegetable garden for himself, would have a son that some years later would steal this land from from this woman. But regardless of, of how she lost land or who took it, remember, before her sojourn, she lacked nothing. She's a wealthy, she was a wealthy woman. And Elisha asked in one moment how God could bless her. What could God do to really bless her? And she said, essentially, I'm content. I have everything I need. I don't really need anything from God. Now, after these seven years, this, this once content, once wealthy woman is homeless. And men and women, I would submit to you this morning, so are we. So are we. Anyone who will pursue faithfulness to God in this life, as this woman pursues faithfulness to Elisha's words, will find themselves homeless. The Apostle Peter refers to Christians years later as sojourners and exiles in the world. In other words, we have a home, We have one. We're we're made to find our home in God and with God. But sin, our own sin and the sin of others, has robbed us of our home. We have a home, but this isn't it. This isn't it. And so like this woman, what we most desire is actually to have our home restored. We want to be back where deep down we know we belong. We've come across a lot of surprising things in the books of 1 and 2 Kings. But one of the most surprising, at least to me, is that in this moment, the king of Israel actually gives this woman back her home. Not only the land and not only the house, but as it says there in verse 6, all the produce of the fields from the day she left until now. In other words, all the income, all the food that would have been hers had she been living on that land for those seven years, she gets that restored too. How does that happen? How does that happen? The kings of Israel are not, in any sense of the word, noble men. This king might have even been the one who took her home from her. Why is he so quickly willing to give her back? The answer is God's providence. God's providence. God is the God of restoration. And in this woman's restored home, we, we see his providence. The only reason I'm convinced that the king restores her home is timing. Timing. She, she walks in the room as Gehazi, Elisha's servant, is telling the king about all these amazing things that Elisha has has done. As several scholars point out, that's more fascination than faith on the part of the king. So we we can be amazed by by things God does without actually putting our trust, putting our faith in God. And people do that all the time. They're they're amazed by the things that happen around the church or around people of God, but they don't actually put their faith in God. The king is doing that here. 
But Gehazi starts rattling off a number of these things that Elisha's done, and wouldn't you know it, just as he gets to that one time when Elisha brought a dead son back to life, in walks that son, in walks this woman from Shunem. There are no coincidences. There are no coincidences. Coincidence is a word used by people who'd rather not deal with the uncomfortable truth that behind every occurrence and behind the timing of everything stands the God of heaven and earth. By his providence, God can move the hearts of wicked kings. By his providence, God can bring otherwise unimaginable restoration. And church, by his providence, God will bring us to our restored home. See, this is why when when writing about the salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul says things like, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Galatians chapter 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. In the providence of God, Jesus Christ came into the world and he died and he rose again, all of it just at the right time. And in the providence of God, when Jesus comes again to restore our home, to restore all things, it will happen at just the right time. So this morning, men and women, marvel at the providence of God. Marvel at God's providence. We can do that in the broad, global sense that Christ died for sinners like us at just the right time. But we can also marvel in a personal sense, like this woman from Shunem would be able to do for the rest of her life. It is by the providence of God that any one of us is in this room this morning. And so I just would invite you to reflect on that later today or this week. How did that happen? How did that happen? For you who are Christians, how did you come to believe? How did God intervene in your life? What people did he put in your path? What circumstances did he use to to grab your attention? For any of you here this morning who are not Christians, I would also submit to you, it's the providence of God that you are here today. It's not a coincidence. And I just would invite you to consider what's going on right now in your life that maybe led to, to you being here today. And if you're willing to consider that he exists, what might God be trying to say to you even now? Perhaps you, like me, and like every single person that has ever set foot on this earth, perhaps you are longing for restoration. And and though you've maybe never thought about it in these terms, what you most want, the thing you most want deep down in your soul, is a home restored. And all the things that the brokenness of this world, all the things that that the craziness of of good that's going on in your life or the lives of people around you, all that that has ruined and robbed, you want that back. That restored home is offered to you in Jesus Christ. It is held out to you. No matter what your life looks like right now, no matter what this past week has looked like, God is not a throwaway God. God is the God of restoration. So may you see in this restored city a glimpse of God's promise to make all things new. And may you see in this woman's restored home a glimpse of God's providential timing and care for your own restoration, men and women, and for the restoration of all things. May you see in the finished work of Jesus Christ today just how committed God is to restore. Amen. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, give us strength to live out this message we've heard today. We believe, 
Help our unbelief. We believe you are the God of restoration. We can't always see it. And so help us even now as we prepare to come to your table to see it here. If we can't see it anywhere else right now, can we see it here? That you have given of your body, you have shed your blood, you have invited us to feast on grace, to feast on your finished work in anticipation of the day that you will restore all things, that we will eat at your table forever in your kingdom. I pray that you would help us see today that you are the God of restoration. Meet us by the power of your spirit. Strengthen us and renew us with grace today as we come. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.